We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City on June 4th. We are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest. And then the final event, the Behind the Bangs Writing Workshop. I finally did it, put it together, put together this workshop because I wrote this book in many ways for younger me. And younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught. I wanted the gyms. I wanted I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the education. That's what I would have wanted. So I've decided I'm doing it. And in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn. 15 years. In my 15-year career as a TV writer and author and blah, 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 all the other things I've written, there are six things that I always use, and all of those are in this workshop. So if you have an interest in writing, sign up. All the ticket links are live today. Click the show notes. Click my Instagram. We are coming to a city near you, and there's going to be some meet and greets. I'll sign some copies of books. We'll give out more books, and I have uh, some pieces of merch that I'm taking on the road, and I'm going to give them out at the shows. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This week, we're book clubbing Inside Out by Demi Moore. Basically, I want it all. I want to be a good mother, and I want to be a good host. So here I am, my baby's asleep in my dressing room, her daddy's watching her, and remember, I had a baby just 12 weeks ago. And look at me. You guys, this is the Demi Moore Week. Um, This is possibly my favorite memoir. Danielle Schneider um, from the podcast Bitch Sesh uh, wrecked this book to me, and I read it in a hot tub over Christmas. I wouldn't normally be drawn to, like, a Demi Moore memoir because she has—Demi Moore has, like, cool, thin girl discipline vibes, and, like, I'm (laughs) not— I'm not usually like, I can't connect with those things. And so I was really not expecting how incredible she was and how blown away I was by this book. And so I'm really excited for this podcast. And my guest today is Sierra Teller Ornelas. She is a TV writer, a screenwriter, a showrunner, and a weaver. She has written on everything from Brooklyn Nine-Nine to Happy Endings to Splitting Up Together to Superstore. And she is currently showrunning her own show. This is not a joke. She is in a trailer on set doing this podcast. You're, You're in a trailer right now, right? I'm currently in a borrowed trailer. Yes. Yes. Oh, borrowed trailer. Th- those ones are the best yes, ones. Yes, not my own trailer. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is phenomenal. I can't believe you took time away from, from, you know, running an incredibly powerful show to do this. So thank you so much. 
You're very sweet. I don't know how powerful I am, but um, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I will say your your Instagramming of these books got me through a lot of quarantine. <laughs> so this is my thank you to you <laughs> because there were moments when things got really dark and I was like, oh, thank God she posted about, you know, Jessica Simpson and... And it was a really, uh, it was a, it was a weird bright spot. Oh man! Well, I will say, I we we've met in real life, but I feel like our friendship grew through this book club. And you gave yes, me for sure. so many great tidbits uh, that like blew my mind along the way. So I feel like you've really been book clubbing <laughs> this whole thing with me. Um, okay, so on this podcast, I I introduce my guests with the story of how we first met, and you and I met. This is how I remember it: we were at a birthday party for a mutual friend. Mm-hmm. Somehow we were like. I know there was like potato appetizers going around the room and I remember being like I'm so sorry I have to eat these can I like sit down next to you and like can we can I eat this thing on the table and you were like yes (laughs) god um and then we immediately started talking about drag race and how we loved Patrice Royale which is like such a distinct queen to love and you told me this beautiful story about how you you were so taken with her in a show that you took a ring off your finger and gave it to her I did. Yeah. It's like a, um, I'm uh, a member of the Navajo Nation. Can I just say my clans real quick before I start? I would love that. Awesome. My name is Sierra. I'm born of the Edgewater clan and for the Mexican people. Um, yeah. So I've heard these, like, I remember, um, Navajos love Waylon Jennings. They like love him. Yeah. <laughs> he was the, he was just the coolest ever. And um, he, in the later years of his life, didn't do a lot of shows, but always toured the Navajo Nation and did a bunch of shows. And there was like one show where they knew that he, it was going to be his last show. Like you could just, you just knew and his wife sang a lot of the songs. And so as he exited the stage, um, people just started handing him jewelry. They just like, and it's just like a way of showing love. It's like this weird thing. And it's not like, it doesn't always happen. I feel like you have to be a very, very special person. It's not just something Someone's we like, do. Someone's um, like, why didn't I get jewelry? Um. <laughs> right, exactly. Sorry, Nelly. Um, but yeah, no, so, but, uh, but yeah. And so I was so taken by their performance and, and just, I don't know. I, 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 um, Drag Race is another show I feel like that got me through some, some hard times. Same. And it was just, yeah, a way to say thank you. And it was just such a beautiful um, rendition. And I was like, yeah, you should have my ring. Wow. I- and then I was also, a, I was a little drunk, but I- well, sure, I, well, sure. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was a reasonable um, amount of drunk and more moved than anything, so. Uh, well, I love finding out that Drag Race got you through hard times because in, in one of the hardest times of my life when I was like on the floor depressed, I don't know if I can like get up again, watching that show and, and seeing these queens like, you know- come from nothing and make themselves into something got me through it too of course yeah just that <sighs> stories no of survival I love you so much um <laughs> stories of survival speaking of the demi moore book um Ooh. i really wanted you to do this book um i was like hoping you'd pick it and then you picked it because we both have a connection to new mexico and mm-hmm. while re- reading this book i found out demi moore was born in new mexico yeah. in roswell which blew my mind i feel like you should always know anyone who came from New Mexico. And I just, like, can't believe she exists and we all don't know this more. <laughs> Maybe other people do. Um, I We we grew up, ev- like, all around the Southwest. I lived in a bunch of different states. We landed in New Mexico as, like, our last move. My mom is still there. My stepdad's there. And it's my favorite It's my favorite place in the world. And um, yeah. I think it's so special. Did you grow up in New Mexico? Or do you have family there? Um, my mom is from the Four Corners area of New Mexico. So that's like where my people come from. Yeah. So we were 
constantly visiting and we would spend long stretches and I lived on the reservation for a very short time, but when I did, it was in New Mexico. Um, and so, yeah, so I feel very close to that area and just always love going back. Same. Yeah. Especially having this career, like going back to New Mexico is such a restorative thing, um, which I almost don't want to say too much because it also has a weird tourist thing uh, where people are like putting on, uh, like cactus earrings and being like New Mexico, but, um, no, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I feel like, yeah, the things that make me nostalgic are like giant wet burritos in like a styrofoam container like like it's not like Sedona it's like a different type of imagery that gets me going um with New Mexico so this book one of the reasons I love it is because it is really a tale of intergenerational trauma and the dedication is for my mother my daughters and my daughter's daughters and intergenerational trauma is often a very difficult thing to discuss so I loved this book kind of just weaving in this tale of her life and making a lot of things that are like I don't know take years in therapy to discover like very just clear Mm -hmm. in this book. Um, and I also love she shows you how to repair relationships step by step. And and she really hits rock bottom and has to come back from it. And she's like, here's how you do that. And I can't think of a greater book to read where you're like, oh, a plan. Definitely. I also think, too, like, I remember in my 20s, before I got really into therapy, there was like a day where I was like, oh, I don't like myself. And it was like, I had to say that and own it before I could start the journey of liking yourself. And I thought it was so cool that she was like, yeah, I had nothing. I like my daughters wouldn't talk to me, which I feel like is the ultimate. I have nothing. It's like, I couldn't get a job. I was divorced. Like the people who I leaned on no longer wanted me around them. And then it was like, that's when she began to do all this work on herself. And I just thought that was such a great, I don't know. Yes. I don't feel like a lot of people admit that part of it. They like talking about the process and the journey and the like, restoration but I thought it was really cool that she was okay with being in the parts where it was like this is when it was bad and this is when things were not going my way you know I totally agree I thought that was really powerful and in fact the book starts with her at rock bottom so I'll just read out the first page um so we can get in Demi's head it's in three parts the book is um survival success and surrender and this is the prologue the same question kept going through my head How did I get here? In the empty house where I'd been married, where we'd added on because I had more kids than bedrooms, I was now completely alone. I was almost 50. The husband who I thought was the love of my life had cheated on me and then decided he didn't want to work on our marriage. My children weren't speaking to me. No happy birthday calls. No Merry Christmas texts. Nothing. Their father, a friend I'd counted on for years, was gone from my life. The career I'd scrambled to create since I moved out of my mother's apartment when I was 16 years old was stalled, or maybe it was over for good. Everything I was attached to, even my health, had abandoned me. I was getting blinding headaches and losing weight scarily fast. I looked like I felt. Destroyed. Is this life, I wondered? Because if this is it, I'm done. I don't know what I'm doing here. Okay. So we should also say this is a very sad book. So sad. I like I feel like when when it was on your Instagram and then I was listening to it. It's such a sh- it's a sh- quick read mm-hmm. that I was like, "Oh, this is going to be great." And then I re-listened to it and I was like, "Who, Nelly, like this is sad. Yes. It's it's got a lot of dark it parts to it." It is a very it. 
Very dark book. But at the end of the book, she dishes on Ashton Kutcher. So the light is coming, you guys. <laughs> oh, God bless. Um, God bless. But it starts right after she's kind of post that event where she was rushed to the hospital for having overdosed. It's January 2012. You just heard how rock bottom she is. This is also how Jessica Simpson's book starts, where she's like, I'm drunk mm-hmm. at 7 a.m. So these are both like, how did I get here and how do I come back journeys? Demi talks about her very traumatic childhood. Her parents are Danny and Jenny, such cute names, but um, they were pretty psychotic. They were at each other's throats. They were married young. They moved a lot. Demi says that she and her brother Morgan went to two new schools every year of her life. And basically every time her dad was caught cheating, they would move away from the woman as if to solve the problem and, you know, just take all the problems with them. That was the solution. That was the solution. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy. I wish that solution worked. I wish you could move away and like everything is good, but but that never happens. <laughs> right. Not that I know of. Um, she references being someone who says y'all as a kid, which I say y'all a lot, and um yes. and how like they get made fun of, but like because of New Mexico. You're a y'all. You have to be. I like adopted the y'all. Yeah. I have like family. It's more of like a valley girl y'all, but it's, it's there. A sure. y'all is a y'all, you know? <laughs> Um, I, yeah, uh, I, I, I say y'all so much. I sometimes misspell it and people correct me. And I'm like, there is nothing more anti y'all to correct the apostrophe in y'all. Like that means you are not of this world. Leave me alone. You should not get to use that word. (laughs) Exactly. I also liked how she talked about like, um, that her brain worked in a way where like when she was jumped into a new place, she immediately was like a terminator, like a social kind of terminator of like, who are the cool people? How do I get in with them? Like, how do I find a group? How do I, like, what's the deal here? What are people into? How do I get into that? Like, it was really interesting hearing her kind of like, the coping mechanism. Yeah, it was like a survival skill that then ends up being how she becomes an actor. Because yeah. she wasn't one of those people who's like, I want to act. She was just trying to survive always. And then I think acting was actually a survival choice. Um, For sure. Which is odd. I mean, so she has this really tough life. Um, Really, so many things happen in the book, so you should definitely buy it. But the kind of big event is that one night, her dad calls her into the room, and her mom was laying on the bed and had attempted suicide. And Demi's hands, because she was a child, were small enough to pull the pills out of her mom's mouth. And uh, childhood was over. Um, It was interesting, that line where she was like, I I didn't know what was happening, and I also knew what was happening. Like, it's just such a heartbreaking thing of, like, Because I think everybody goes through that thing of realizing your parents are just human. But this is, like, beyond, like, you're like, oh, I'm raising myself and I'm a child. Like, And what I love is that she talks about how her mom was a sickly kid and she was never loved by her mom and her mom's dad was a cheater and then, you know goes and marries a cheater herself. The one anecdote where I was like, I have to include this. Demi's grandpa drove his blue El Camino drunk under a truck one day and decapitated himself. And that is how he died. And I'm including that because this is a real, like, this is where this woman comes from, family lineage story. Um, And you can see why her mom goes on to do all the things she does in this book. Um, But so her mom and her dad go back and forth. And then at one point, her mom gets a therapist. And they're like, oh, my God, yes, mom got a therapist. And then she falls in love with the therapist. And then his name is Roger. And then she moves in with Roger. And uh, and then her Demi's dad kidnaps Demi and her brother in order to get her mom's attention and get away from Roger. And then when they get back together, Demi realizes they're on the run because her mom stole Roger's credit card (laughs) and is paying for their trip through California. 
I really loved Roger in this book. I needed more Roger. <laughs> I, like, want to know where he is now. Totally. Like, worst therapist, best therapist? Yeah. Who's, yeah, to, who's say? to say? And there's a, so crazy. there's a huge theme I've found in these books where, in the Mariah Carey book, I'm like, is this the worst therapist or the best therapist? In the Mel B book, I'm like, this is the worst therapist I've ever heard of in my life. Yes. Um, but therapists like are like a strong character in these books, and often it's a it's a it's a bad one. It's one who fucks his client and yeah. gets her on pills. So then uh her mom, they kind of have like one big final divorce. And this time Demi knows it's different because her dad takes her brother Morgan and her mom takes her. They literally kind of split custody via splitting the kids down the middle. And Demi's mom moves them to West Hollywood. And she says she and her mom are more like friends now, but you know, there's she's in touch with her dad throughout her whole life. And one time her mom and her are going to visit her dad post-divorce. And because he took Morgan and because Demi's like a snoop around her birth certificate, she finds out that her dad is not even her real dad. And when they walk in the door, her mom kind of like wields it as emotional power. And she's like, Demi knows. And she sees her dad's like heartbreak. And he just, once Demi knows he's not her real dad, he never can love her again. And one interesting thing is that her dad had a lazy eye and Demi had one too and had it fixed later. But that's kind of this genetic thing that where she's like, I got this my lazy eye from my dad only to find out he's not a real dad. Um, this is part of why this book means so much to me is that I also found out my dad was not my real dad uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah. And um, it was a different situation than this, but it was similar in that uh, my dad loved my brother and he didn't want to pay child support for me and he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't call me to talk to me. And he just always didn't love me. And I, like, knew it. And he and my mom had divorced when I was really young. So it was also, like, a, an ex. And I had this horrible relationship with him. And then I found out he wasn't my real dad. And it was, it, I will say at the time, it was, like, great. I was like, I'm <laughs> free. Um, I just felt so happy I wasn't tied by blood to this man who was also, he was a bad, abusive man. And I was like, oh my God, this is, I'm free. I found out that I was a sperm donor kid. Wow. And I, I've talked a lot about not knowing who my dad is throughout my comedy. Like I used to do this piece where I, at Second City, where I would go into the audience and try and find my dad every night. And, um, you know, (laughs) to to mixed reviews. And then, like, in my stand-up, I continued trying to—I can I really tried to do that piece for a long time. I think half was a joke, and half of me was like, I don't know, he could be here. Um, but uh, but I never really, like, talked about the sperm donor thing. But this book really—I don't know. It's just you can't—you don't think of a lot of people of, like, oh, they found out their dad wasn't the real dad. And here's this, like, celebrity woman. And, and we've had, like, the same experience. By the way, I was reading this in a hot tub, full-on sobbing, wasted. And I was just like, Debbie knows me. Um, uh, but— but <laughs> But it also really spoke to me about, like, men and paternity and the ability to love a child uh, and how there's, like, some weird – yeah, I'm not a scientist, but there's, like, some weird ego thing with, like, the child being yours or the child knowing it's yours. And when that's broken, their, like, fatherly juice goes away. Like, I don't know what happens, but it's a very, like, common thing of, like, you're not my kid. I don't love you anymore. Wow. Yeah, you're you're like, wow, this is really sad, Chelsea. Okay, we're going to move on from this. <laughs> no, I'm into it. I have like 10,000 questions, but we have to talk about Demi. But like um but yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it is wild. But anyways, her her pain from that, I just felt like, oh, I know that pain. 
there's a lot of shame around this, which is why I was like, I got to talk about it on this podcast because finding out your parent is not who you think they are is is such an intensely painful experience. It's it's hard to describe. And so Demi Moore sharing this story, that's why it meant so much to me. And But I think there's something interesting about like, I connected to it on a level of like, when people are sort of like emotionally teenagers, like the vindictiveness of the way the parents fought with each other with like absolutely no regard. And like having, I have a son and like, you don't stop being the person you are when you have a kid. Like you think it's going to make you a better person and it kind of just makes you more of who you are and you kind of are doing, it's like you're laying track as the train's coming. So I'm like in therapy trying to get healthy like before he catches (laughs) up to me. But, um, but there were so many moments that first couple years where I was like apologizing to my parents of like, well, of course you would have done this. Like, of course that's what happened. Like all these things I was sort of holding on to as a child and like reading this book, it was very interesting to me of like, Oh, this is like, take the, it was just like bad teenage parents on steroids. I mean, it was crazy. The, the, the levels that they would go to, to hurt each other. Yeah. It's, it's very intense, but uh, yeah, kind of like you said, reading this book makes you like, look at your own parents and anything where you're like, Oh God. But they're just trying to, like, get through life. My, my mom at that point was just trying to, like, help us survive. You know, so it's like you've For got, sure. like, shit to care about. Um, and yeah. Demi does, like, after she finds this out, she goes to meet her real dad, and who, of course, is a massive disappointment. And I say, of course, because I've watched, I've watched and read a- anything you could possibly find about finding your real dad. And in those documentaries, it is never some great guy. He's never handsome. He's never, like, some beautiful poet. <laughs> it is always some, I'm so sorry to say this, it's, but it's always some fucking loser and in one documentary i watched this is really what because i was really searching for my dad for a long time and and i watched this one documentary where they're like yeah then i went to find my donor um it turns out he was this he's this homeless man living in mexico and he got by in the 80s by selling his sperm and telling people he went to harvard and they were like we got some we got some harvard sperm for you it's just this like dude in a hat like reading a paper oh, and they're like man. do you want to meet your kids and he was like of course not um so it's just it's it's always like so i just like if you're if your dad has abandoned you or is a donor like it, it i don't think there's like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and you know this is what happens to demi too when she finally meets her real dad and he doesn't pick her up from the airport his mistress does uh you know first red flag so then Back in West Hollywood, her mom is attempting suicide on and off all the time. It becomes a regular occurrence. And so Demi develops this thing that she says in her own words, um, I adopted an invulnerable, self-sufficient persona in response, which is why I didn't feel drawn to Demi. Because I'm kind of like a big chaotic mess. And so I love messes. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, who's this like cool girl who's got it together? Like, that's not me. And little as did I know, that was like this trauma response she'd created. And, you know, she she and I are best friends, which she also doesn't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is also why I would love my enemy's memoir. I don't know if you feel this, but really? yeah, like if if my enemy was like, I'm coming out with a memoir, it would be like Christmas for me because I want to know like, like what's in your head? Like, what are you thinking? Like, I would love to know what makes someone like who I personally hated. I, that would be my first memoir that I would want to read. And there was someone in my life where I, we weren't, we were not um, enemies by any stretch, but they were someone that I was very intimidated by and looked up to and was like, I was like, so, um, 
I would just say dumb things in front of them. And I was like, I just wish there was a way. And then I remembered that they did write a memoir and I, I read it cover to cover and I was like, oh, I get this person. <laughs> and it was like oh. so much easier to, to deal with that person because I was like, oh, I totally understand why they're doing the things that they're doing and this all makes sense now. And it was weirdly like a manual. And, and Sarah, like, yeah, this is my strange. fantasy story come true. <laughs> like, this is exactly <laughs> what I'm picturing. I, I really feel like you can understand everyone through their memoir um, I love hearing someone's single-sided perception, especially if they've done fucked up shit in life, because it's just like, yeah, how'd you get there? And totally. how would you ever change, if you will? My version of that is I want Emilio Estevez's memoir oh. because he's connected to so many crazy people. He really and he's is. and he seems like the like kind of like straight-laced dude who probably like if you ever see those interviews with Eddie Murphy, because Eddie Murphy never did drugs, he remembers like everything. Yeah. It's like this crazy oh, wow. recall. And I feel like Emily West of us has to have the dirt on like literally everyone. Oh, 100%. He has a great little part in this book coming up. Yes. Um, okay, but first we have to do something really sad, which is tell the story of Val. Um, Val is a very old dude. I'm going to do it kind of quickly. Val's a very yeah. old dude that Demi and her mom meet at a restaurant because her mom like looks like her sister and wants to go on the town all the time. They He starts hanging out with Demi. He starts picking her up from school and he's just like her old friend. Um, one day Demi comes home to him in the apartment He'd gotten in because her mom gave him the key, and he's there waiting for her, and he rapes her. And she's 15 years old. And she, in her 15-year-old mind, thinks she deserves it because she hung out with him. And kids who have trauma always feel that, like, they did something to deserve it. They often feel like that years into the future. And I'm going to read her page about why she didn't talk about this earlier because this really resonated with me. In recent years, I have watched in awe as woman after woman has come forward to tell her story of sexual assault, amazed by both the courage of these women and by the attacks on their character that have inevitably followed. And yet people ask why it takes women years or decades to tell others what happened to them. All I can say is that anyone asking that question has never been raped. When you are sexually assaulted in a culture that tells you over and over again that admitting your victimization makes you a suspect, makes you a liar, makes you a slut who deserves to have your life put under a microscope for all to see, guess what? You keep it a secret. And she kept it a secret for a very, very long time. Um, and and I know. I know. I have so many thoughts about this. I just think it's like so much of this book is about, in my mind, like how – I don't know. Everyone's always like, why wouldn't you say that you were sexually assaulted? And it's like, we're not even allowed to say when stuff's wrong. Like when we just don't even like how something feels much less when something like that has happened to you. And so like, there's just, just such a culture of like going along to get along for women, especially at that time. And I think it's like so fascinating watching her throughout like each decade struggle with just acknowledging when she's unhappy or acknowledging when something's not good. And it's like, totally understandable that she's going to repeat her mother's um patterns because yeah. she didn't even know that she could not do those she things, didn't even get a full you know? childhood to grow inside of and uh, you know that actually just reminds me of a very important part of the Val story that i think i skipped over in my um you know talking about that stuff is like really yes. intense and so oh and you don't have to if you don't want oh, to oh I'm no no to, like, no no i'm ta- i'm going to talk about val <laughs> to put a button on that story which is really important um, after that incident, Demi sees Val um, because he shows up to help. They're moving, right? They're moving away. And uh, 
And Jimmy's thinking like, oh my God, I'll be in a new place where Val doesn't know where I live and I'm going to be safe. And when she shows up to move, Val is there. And when her mom goes around the corner, Val turns to her and says, how does it feel to be whored out by your mom for $500? And basically says Demi Moore's mom sold her to this man to be raped for $500. Wow, how did I forget that? I think I blacked it out for her. I know, I know. I was like, yeah, I didn't want to bring it up. I I think there's something too about like her mother. Like clearly it seemed like this mother was a source of chaos. All she was trying to do was to create some kind of order in her life. And it almost feels like even as a 16-year-old, if she was able to be capable of a little bit of order, that her mom found a way to to blow it up. Even if it wasn't like in her mind, like doing it in a nefarious way, just kind of letting things happen. It just feels so crazy when someone is like, needs to be an agent of chaos. Oh, and, yeah. You know, yeah. And, it's just, and of course, like there's a level of evil in that $500 thing that like, I can't, I can't ever wrap my head oh, up. There's no memoir that will get me through that decision. No. Um, but I, I, yeah, I totally agree. Then she goes into this next part. I'm just going to move right along because that's a real tough part. In acting class, she, so she starts an acting class. She meets a guy named Tom who's great and lovely. And she's like, he's the best guy. And on her 16th birthday, she moves in with him and she never goes back to her mom's place again. And you think she's happy and free, but on the next page, she's like, he was 28 years old. So again, she's 16, he's 28. And she's like, but he was really nice. Um, And she is like, oh, he's such a nice guy. But then 28-year-old Tom takes her to a concert where this guy performing on stage is Freddie Moore, as in Freddie Moore, Demi Moore. And she cheats on Tom in the concert bathroom with Freddie and leaves him for Freddie, who is 29 years old, and he's married to another woman. And she's like, this guy's great, too. So, you know, at this point, you're like, oh, very traumatic childhood, cheating on the nice 28-year-old for the not-so-nice 29-year-old. That was a tough story. So then she makes another decision that comes out of, like, a a tough place, which is that she takes topless photos um, for a photographer who promises her they're going to Japan and she'll she'll never see him again. And this is also in an era where that's possible. So she takes these photos and she never does that again because she's just like, I hated that. But modeling and, like, being a beautiful woman becomes her first source of, like, dignity and being worth something and, like, men want to take pictures of her. And so then that's how her whole life becomes about how she looks controlling her body because that is the only thing people value in her, Um, which is uh, something that happens to a lot of women. (laughs) I don't know. Every woman, like, every woman at some point is told, like, all your worth is, like, what you look like. And then you're like, okay, great. Um, Which is so crazy because I feel like she produced the Austin Powers movies. She Wait, I didn't know she produced the Austin Powers movies. I looked up her Wikipedia this morning. It said her company, like, produced those Austin Powers movies. Holy shit. She, yeah, I mean, she she did a lot of, I mean, all this stuff about, like, you know, equal pay and G.I. Jane and producing her own movies. I feel like her... And, like, uh, Meg Ryan and, like, there were, like, a bunch of women, I feel like, who just got dragged in the, like, late 90s, early aughts for wanting more. Like, just the act of being, like, I feel like I deserve as much as these other people are getting. People just lost their minds over it. I totally agree with you. Demi, to me, was really a feminist 
um, before there was um, pride for it, before there was popularity for it, and before she even knew to call herself a feminist. By just living right. her life, she was taking feminist action after feminist action by being in movies, G.I. Jane, which we're going to get to, um, and just trying to exist and have her autonomy was like this feminist act. And yes, the and the 90s and the 80s uh, kicked every woman who did that in the ovaries and said no. Totally. And they kept going. And it sounds bad, but even her like cheating on the one guy to go with the other guy, like most people would be like villainized for that. And I do think there's something interesting about her kind of like the world's ending, I don't care kind of moves where she just kind of leads with a sense of like, I'm going to do what's best for me in these moments because I have to, I have to look out for me because no one else is going to. And that's a very trauma, trauma, like survivor life is just how do I get from one day to the next and how do I totally? But I do think like, I'm sure Ernest Hemingway had trauma, but for some reason we like lionize the men who do it and we never like lionize the women who do it. And I think that there's something about like when women do it, it's like because of their trauma and when men do it, it's the same thing, but we just make it seem like it's cooler. I don't know. It was an artsy choice that he got drunk and, like, <laughs> hit people. Um, You know what, Sierra? On this podcast, we lionize the fuck out of women. I think that's all this podcast is. Exactly. And every prop in the world to Demi. Um, okay, so she becomes a model. And uh, then something terrible happens. Demi's dad dies. And he committed suicide, which is tough because that's what her mom was kind of threatening to do her whole life. But then her dad actually does it. Demi's brother Morgan finds her dad in the garage with the engine running. He was 36 years old. Demi's dad was so drunk that it legally had to be called an accident. And Demi is like, I know my dad did that on purpose because he was an infamous scammer and gambler. That chapter on him is so good. So Mm -hmm. so read the book for all his great scams. But she was like, he knew he would get the insurance payout if he was drunk when he did this. Um, And so she was like, it's one last scam for the road. Um, But she, you know, she suffers through her father's death. After her father died, it was incredibly heartbreaking, and she's 18 years old, and months after he dies, she marries Freddie, and this is when her last name changes to Moore, and later she doesn't, you know, she doesn't connect the dots till later that amidst this massive grieving over her father's death, she threw herself into a marriage. And that closes the first part of the book and takes us into part two, which is titled Success. And she has another kidney flare-up, which is another thing she we had to skip. But um, she has these kidney flare-ups as a child when her dad would cheat. And she's having one now as an adult. And she realized it's because this time she's the one who cheated. And the night before she and Freddie got married, she had snuck out of her own bachelorette party and cheated with a guy that she had met on a set. Um, and I just love... It's I'm, it's so sad, but but uh, but also not. He was 29, you know what I mean? Like get over it. But also, I love when people admit these like you know th- these decisions people would totally shit on you for. And but she is 18. She's not supposed to be marrying this dude. She was only there for safety. And and of course is like I think I'm gonna cheat and doesn't know why at the time. But looking back on it with uh, this lens, you're like, well, of course you were a child getting married. Totally. Out. Yeah. I also think like in terms of like. Because I'm one of those people, based on my trauma, who tried to, like, make everything, you put everything in order, and I can control things, and I can make everyone like me, and, like, and I think that, like, what comes, though, are these, like, waves of chaos, so you're, like, self-sabotaging while you're also, because you're, like, you're still drawn to the chaos. And you you need more things to make perfect. You you need more things to make perfect, you gotta break it up, and and, and it's never supposed to be perfect, because you're, you know, whatever, and so I, I think it's fascinating watching her kind of, like try to make these homes and then like slowly destroying them throughout these decades. 
That's such a good insight. And now I have so many questions for you. And we we have to do another <laughs> podcast where we just talk to each other. Um, we could just go to lunch. We don't have to. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. Why would yeah, we have to record that? Okay. Out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll just go to lunch. <laughs> After the pandemic, um, I'll see you. Um, okay. So what I also love about this book is that Demi walks us through all her breaks in Hollywood. Often they're like, and then I got famous. And they cut to that part. Demi doesn't do that. I love her so much for it. Um, so she walks us through every move. Um but she basically gets this movie that shoots in Brazil. Um, she's got a bunch of things, but that's what—that's kind of a big thing she gets. And at 24, she's in Brazil. She's got a huge cocaine problem that she picked up in Brazil. And she's, she's 24. She realizes she doesn't want to be with Freddie anymore. And I loved her descriptions of, like, growing out of this relationship and just, like, feeling like she didn't want to see him and she didn't want to bring him to events. And, like, I've definitely been in that relationship before where you're, like, nothing's wrong, but, like, I, I'm, like, my body's saying no. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she goes to an audition for a John Hughes movie. She doesn't get it. And as she's walking down the hall, she catches the eye of Joel Shoemaker, who then is like, I have to have you in St. Elmo's Fire. And then that movie changes their life. It's amazing. It's so cool. I love those stories because I feel like that never happens where, like, I remember reading about who was married to Jerry Hall, who was married to Mick Jagger. And she was saying that, like, when she turned 18 – she cashed in like a check, her dad had like a social security check or something. And she took that money and she went to the South of France. She bought a like doily bikini and she's like, and I just walked up and down the beaches until I got discovered. And she was oh like, and then like God. later that day, this photographer was like, do you want to be a model? And she's like, yes, I do. Like, I've come all the way <laughs> she's like, from Texas. Why the hell do you think I'm wearing a doily bikini? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, of course I do. And I just remember thinking like the balls on that woman to do that is like incredible. And like back then you could just like walk around and like wait to be famous. Like, it's just crazy. Which is so funny because now you, like, move to L.A. and you're like, didn't Charlize Theron get discovered in a bank? And you're, like, in a (laughs) bank kind of, like, looking around. You're like, that's not going to happen here anymore. No, exactly. I got to get out of this bank. Um, Yeah, it's such a cool, like, magical story that he just sees her hair and is like, who's that? Well, and then, so they get to set and they're rehearsing. And it quickly becomes clear that Demi has a massive problem with cocaine and with alcohol. So Joel and the producers intervene. And they're like, before we go and start shooting St. Elmo's Fire, you have to um, go to rehab for the for every single day until the shoot starts, and then you're going to have a sober sitter every single moment of the set, or you're fired. And she's like, yeah, okay, fine, I'll do that. So she goes and gets the night before rehab, gets as wasted as possible. Her roommate comes home and finds her screaming that there's a demon inside her that she's got to get out. And then... Uh, then the movie assistant drives up and is like, morning, time to go to rehab. And she even walks in the rehab being like, I don't have a problem. My mom has a problem. Um, and now she sees that movie and that decision as divine intervention to getting her sober. And being an AA teaches about her parents and teaches her about her parents and her trauma. And she like starts to get a hold on life. I think that thought was so interesting about that passage too is she was saying how like, if she had to get clean for herself, she never would have. But the, the like value of a film like production. She was like, well, I can't ruin this film production. So I have to be good enough for this project. And I was like, God, that is like so many times I find women, but also just people like you're able to like rally for other things or other people, but not for yourself. And it just was so, yeah. I think that's such a good point. And it's also another insight into how we value uh, the film and television industry. Totally. (laughs) Where we're like, well, a movie is way more important than my life. (laughs) 
Exactly. Um, but uh, in that cast is Emilio Estevez. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's Charlie Sheen's brother, Martin Sheen's son. Um, she has, like, really lovely things to say about that whole family that really moved me in a way that I didn't think was possible, given the reputation. Um, and then after she gets sober, she and Emilio start dating and then get engaged. They even send out wedding invites. And then she's like, but then he's caught cheating. And so I'm like, oh, should I get married to him? And then she's like, because, you know, before uh, he'd already cheated on me once and got his ex-girlfriend pregnant. And it's like, okay, so he, he wasn't caught cheating. He was... <laughs> You had already stayed with him past him getting his ex-girlfriend pregnant. <laughs> right. What are you doing? Um, and she has a hero therapist who uh, who she goes to see them for, like, a session. And she's like, I only have one session, but, like, I'm supposed to marry this guy, and he just cheated on me. And the therapist is like, you know, I'm not supposed to do this, but, like, absolutely don't marry him. And she's like, okay, dope. <laughs> so shout out to that therapist. Um, then she books the movie uh, about last night. And they're like, you can be in this movie if you promise to lose weight, which is another big theme in books from this decade where they're like, promise me, thin lady, that you'll um, look near death and then you can be in the movie. Right. And she takes the addiction. Yeah. Like Jim Belushi is just like eating cheesesteaks on those scenes and is like the grossest gross. Like, how dare you 80s movie people? I don't know. Yeah. And also like he came from, you know, obviously his brother was very famous. That's how he got into this business. Demi came from like Val in the moving truck and has got (laughs) here herself. Like, how dare she be the one that like has to go on a diet? Um, I do love that movie though. Did you ever see that movie? I've never seen that movie. Oh my God. I gotta go see it. It's so good. And it's so sexy. And when I was a kid, because it's Rob Lowe and her, and they're, like, on again, off again, like, kind of fighting. And then Elizabeth Perkins is her friend, and Jim Belushi is his friend. And it was based on a play, right? I think oh, it's, like, a... that's yeah. right. And, um, and so, but it was, like, always on, like, Encore or something, like, on cable when I was a kid. <laughs> and I watched it all the time. But it was, like, it was, like, weirdly super sexy. Like, they're constantly having sex in, like, tubs and, like, bubble baths oh and, like, God. in closets That's and right, stuff. because she said she was going to be so naked in she that movie. She was so naked, and Rob Lowe's so naked. They're both so thin. And, like, it was some of the first sex I ever saw as a kid. And I was like, this is this must be what relationships are like. Like, I was just... But oh, I remember, my God. I remember being very convinced, like, oh, I'm Elizabeth Perkins. <laughs> like, I'm not Demi Moore. <laughs> You're like, like I'm, I know I'm the friend. <laughs> I'm going to make out with Jim Belushi off camera, and, like, this is my life. But, but I loved that movie. And it was fun watching them just, like, make up and break up. And there's really, like, no story... It's just like, can they be together? Well, well of course, because it, it had to be a play first, right? So that's yeah. just like, <laughs> um, that's so funny. And also, you, we'll get to this later, but you're the person who told me to watch G.I. Jane as I was book clubbing this. But oh, we'll, we'll come yeah. back to that movie. Oh. So many good movies attached so to this many book. Good um, okay, so she stays friends with Emilio. And she takes him as her date to the premiere of Moonlighting, which is a Bruce Willis show, which is where she meets him. It is 1987, and Bruce Willis, like, charms the pants off of her. Emilio's, like, super jealous, even though they're over. Um, She, like, shows up at this place where Bruce is, and he has, like, a Perrier waiting for her and, like, respects her sobriety, like, so hot. Um, And (laughs) And he was, like, super into her. Like, was clearly just, like, I'm going to have this woman, I'm going to marry this woman, like, seems so into her. This is my favorite part of the book. This is the oh most like magic. This is the okay, most magical please, part of the book. Please keep going. Talk about how she wrote her number on his arm. <laughs> well, yeah, she, I don't remember all these. Okay. All I remember is that she wrote her number on his arm because he really wanted to hang out with her, and she was like, "Am I really going to do this with this guy?" And also, like Amelia was there, but then she gets in her car and leaves, so she like doesn't end up with Emilio, and she doesn't end up with him. 
but that his like Rat Pack crew was Woody Harrelson, John Goodman, and him. That was like the toast of the TV stars. Yeah. And that he used to rent limousines so that they could like drive around the town and, and like, just be like, the hot boys. Be the hot boys. And so like she's driving and she hears like on the freeway and she hears someone screaming her name and she looks and it's like these fucking you know dolt Rat Pack Rat Pack Rat Pack. Too. Rat pack um, <laughs> Like, hanging out of the window, like, screaming her name, which is the most, like, Jersey way to, like, court a girl. But at the same time, it's, like, L.A., and it's the 80s, and I don't know. I just thought it was so sweet and dumb and, like, earnest. And also, like, John Goodman, good guy. Woody Harrelson, good guy. Like, that's a good crew of people. Like, like, on its surface, it sounds so gross and, like, bro-y. But when when you really break it, because, like, some people, like, yelling at you from their car. But there's something weirdly, oddly in a basic way, very romantic and sweet about that whole, like, I can see yeah. that scene in a movie. Like, it's just the sweetest thing. The way you were seeing it, I was like, we need a movie about the night she doesn't end up with either of them, but knows her love is coming. <laughs> and then, like, um, he didn't take no for an answer. It's obviously not a good thing. But in the <laughs> 80s, it was, like, so sweet that he was like, no, I'm like, I want this woman and I love her. And, like, I yeah. don't know. I just feel well, like... Well, and also, she was in movies and we're in the 80s where, like, TV wasn't as good as movies. You're and literally a, a garbage star, person. And, yeah. like, she's, yeah... And, like, he, those are TV guys, but not movie guys. And so there's, like, a weird power dynamic. Totally. Totally. Um, so funny. Yeah. So he, like, calls her the next morning. She's like, I'm actually going to go meet my aunt and uncle. And he's like, great. I'll go with you. They have a whirlwind romance. He then books the movie Die Hard. He gets paid $5 million, <sighs> which was unheard of at the time. There's this, like, infamous story about, like, his agent being like, this guy's going to be a star. And this movie, like, really makes him. They go to Vegas when they're in Vegas, he's like, let's get married, baby. They've been dating like four months. She gets pregnant on their wedding night on November 21st, 1987. And she later, nine months later, gives birth to their daughter, Rumor. And they become an it couple. And she's 25 years old. It's amazing. Okay, now we're going to take a quick break. But when we come <laughs> back, the marriage of Demi and Bruce and then Ashton. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir 
but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes. But, you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, so we're back. Timmy and Bruce have just gotten married and they moved to Idaho, which it's Haley, Idaho. They still have a house compound there now. And um, I feel like if you're compromising between New Mexico and Jersey, it's Idaho. Like if you were to like, yeah. you know I mean, it's like <laughs> the perfect compromise between those two locations. That's such a good point. Um, uh, she writes, I know that sounds like the perfect life, but as I would soon find out, if you carry a well of shame and unresolved trauma inside of you, no amount of money, no measure of success or celebrity can fill it. Preach. And I just, I, I also was like having a great life. And then I turned 30 and all my trauma just like came seeping out of my pores and I couldn't like get it back in. And so that's also why I really love this book because she just says like, I'm fine. I'm a superstar. And she's just still not fine. Totally. And I think there's also like so much survivor's remorse that comes with like getting out, like getting out of that chaos. And you, you are with someone who's reasonably consistent and and treats you well. And it's got to be such a weird feeling. And you're in Idaho. Like, it's just got to be so. (laughs) Yeah, you're in picturesque Idaho. Picturesque Idaho. But you also have like no support system. You don't have like your friends nearby. It's like, I can't imagine not feeling a little marooned. Because you yes. feel like you're such an island when you first have a baby anyway, and your body's say, all and different. Mom. And then it's like you're in Idaho, and your husband's, you know, a giant action star. Like, it's just going to be so crazy. he wants you to be a stay-at-home mom. And she's like, but I'm an actress. And he's like, what? Um, so that's this something is, important uh, to know. This is like, <laughs> I know. All I want to talk about is Bruce Willis and Demi Moore. I feel like this is the classic thing, though, of, like, men being drawn to women for, like, their independence and their sort of free-spiritness. And then it's like, you get them, you decide to become a couple you decide to become a unit and then you're like oh no i i want you to just be my beta and take care of the kids so that i can go do this thing and she's like well i also wanted to do that thing and i thought there was something so interesting about him being like well i'm just incapable of that like it wasn't it didn't seem like there was a lot of fighting or him forcing her to be a certain well, way and a lot this. of like you're the woman if you're the woman but it was like one of those things where it felt like he didn't start out being that way but no. then fundamentally was like oh at my core this is what i need like do you ever hear that story about how I think it's George Clooney told, this is like from Us Weekly, so this is not like, who knows if this is real, but like George Clooney had given Matt Damon advice and he said like, when you marry someone, marry someone who just has like a regular job so that you can kind of like control the schedule and oh, stuff cool. that you don't want to. And then I think he ended up marrying someone who was like a bartender or a teacher or something. He did, he married like, um, Ben Affleck's assistant. Right, and so like there's an element of that where it's like you, 
you know your life is going to be more busy, so you you try to you're drawn to someone whose life is less busy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he wasn't. He was actually drawn to someone whose life was really really busy. And well, then yeah. once he got in too deep, they were just like, oh shit, we didn't. Because those are like the conversations you should have when you don't get engaged and married four months into a relationship, right? Absolutely. But it's like such a whirlwind. It's like, what are you going to do? But I just I weirdly like. I felt so bad for both of them because it, you look at their Instagram. I'm obviously like projecting massively, but he so clearly likes her as a person and clearly enjoys her. And like those Christmas photos and the quarantine. Well, and we I was should just let like, everyone know that they're quarantining together. Yeah. So it's like, it's kind of a spoiler on the book, but you guys, Demi Moore and Bruce Willis are currently quarantining together. I'm sorry. With it's a spoiler. With his wife. With his wife With and his, his new kids. Yeah. Oh, and all their kids, because we're going to get to the There's compound like later. 10 kids and 40 dogs, and I just was in for all of it. I was like, oh, this This to me is like a, like they bought back anything that they had done because I felt like they were, I don't know, so respectful of each other's experiences. And like, he just seems to like care about her in a way that I was like, yeah, oh. like, well, yeah. And in the beginning of the book, she's like, my friend and ex-husband, Bruce, who I've counted on my whole life, isn't talking to me. And she mourns that friendship. Yes. And now, spoiler alert enough to quarantine together um they're they made it through so you're right there is like a lot of good stuff there and maybe like some weird 80s values where he's like stop totally. doing movies and she's like but it made me no. mad because you wanted to shake him and be like she's clearly the woman you want like oh her, yeah make one less diehard and like have a great life and he just like couldn't do it <laughs> and he's like we have to have all the diehards yeah also you made like north and like truly terrible movies yeah so like you like, didn't have to go and do you, those yeah you didn't have to do like half those movies but Demi did have to go do her movies because she goes and does ghost she does G.I. Jane. She does Indecent Proposal. Like, these phenomenal, huge, groundbreaking movies. Um, She also... I, well, th- with those movies, I just want to say real quick, um, when I was doing this, I was like, should I watch G.I. Jane? Because I only had my child perception of it, which is just like this crazy movie Demi did. Um, I also didn't, we didn't have TV growing up. So I also have like a skewed perception of TV and film. And Sierra was like, you have to watch this movie. It's one of the greatest movies. It I was love- so great. It's so great. And it was so clearly produced by a woman. Like the way that they sexualize... Um, What's his name? Oh, I'm going to forget his name. He plays the, like, Navy SEAL captain. Oh, um, it was Viggo Mortensen, which, of course, we forgot who that was because the whole movie is mostly just, like, jacked Demi Moore. Oh, jacked Demi Moore so good. But there were so many shots and stuff where I was like, oh, this was clearly, like, a woman's hand was in this in the best way. And then, yeah, I love J.J. I, I grew up with Demi Moore movies. Like, I loved Ghost. I loved her in A Few Good Men. Like, I thought she was so good in that movie. really quickly, there's a quote in this book where um, Sorkin tells Demi that an executive said uh, in that movie, A Few Good Men, if Demi doesn't sleep with Tom Cruise, then why is Demi's character a woman? So insane. So? uh, The the amount of anger in my body. And, you know, it's still, you know, we both work in Hollywood. That stuff still happens. Of course. Um, And there's something about her as an actress that I feel like, I think Winona Ryder kind of had this where, like, there were, like, classically kind of, like, beautiful women, which those women both are. But, like, there's just something a little weird or bent about them. I think she had, like, like kind of more masculine voice and she was a little husky. And, like, that haircut and ghost, there were just these weird Which, by the way, she got that haircut herself. So you yes. think, like, oh, my God, Hollywood designer. No. She went and gave herself that iconic look. It was her choice. Everyone on set was like, ooh, we hate Pissed. it. And now it's something we look back on with, like, huge adoration. Yeah. 
And Ghost is like maybe one of the best movies of all time. That's that's probably a top 10 for me. Oh, um, so good. Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost. Um, she also, um, so she's like pregnant. She's having their other two daughters kind of over the span of doing these movies, which is like from 1993 to 1997. Um, she does the, the cover of Vanity Fair when she's pregnant. And it's such a scandal at the time that Vanity Fair created like a flap to cover her belly, which Uh I I even seen it. I'm like, that is so fucking disgusting. It's not that long ago. And it was this, this is what I'm talking about. This is what we're both talking about with her being such a feminist. She was the first person to be like, it is not disgusting and hideous when a woman is pregnant. And, but women were like, how dare she? Yeah, they were like, it's slutty. How dare you make a mom slutty? But yeah, no, she's beautiful. She's powerful. My mom still has that Vanity Fair. She saved it after all these years because it like meant so much to her. No, totally. And I just love, like, yeah, she was, like, 10 years before everybody else with that stuff. Yeah. I feel like now everyone's doing that stuff, and it's, like, not weird at all. It's all on Instagram. But, like, back when she was doing it, it was truly, like, something you never saw. Like, women got pregnant and just hid, you know? Oh, absolutely. Like, on TV shows, you put, like, baskets of laundry in front of them and just hope no one noticed. And, like, now it's just so different. Well, and she, during this time, becomes the highest woman paid in movies. She's mm-hmm. making half. Half as much as Bruce Willis is making in movies, and the press nicknames her Gimme More. And they don't have nicknames for Bruce, but they no. have shitty nicknames for Demi. And there was no there was no one in that time to like rally around her. And she just like got pummeled for making money and like posing pregnant. And she I just feel like we don't give her enough credit. Which when you look at like the hits that she had and the hits that he had, pretty equal hits. Like, like there was I feel like Bruce Willis made more stinkers than she did if you like add them all up. And and if you look at like resonance now, I mean, it's not even a question. I don't know. I just yeah, I love her. I love her so much too. Well, okay, so then, you know, this whole book she's been dealing with her mom, kind of like you're saying survivor's guilt. She's like staying in touch with her mom. And her mom has been selling off photos of them to the tabloids. That and then to me is the like, how do you not just have her murdered? Like oh, when she one, Yes. Because it's like not just that, she was like doing the pregnancy photos. She was like trying to emulate well, her daughter. Yeah, so she does Demi's so... pregnancy photo naked, but her mom's uh like 50-ish or something at this time. And so then it's like people are being like, Demi's mom naked. This is the moment. It took her so long and so much happened with her mom from the suicide attempts and the chaos as a child to living together and her mom being more of a friend than a mom. And then the rape she experienced at the hand of her own mother, you know, Demi was still there for her mom through throughout all of that, sending her money, taking care of her until finally when her mom is selling photos of her children, only then does she finally cut her off. And so she cuts her off and they do not speak for eight years. And she's just motherless and fatherless. Um, It's in 1991 when she has her daughter, Scout, and later Tallulah. She does all these movies. And then finally, kind of like at the end of G.I. Jane, which like the amount of physical work she had to do in that movie. By the way, quick shout out. um, There's a scene in that movie where she's just like shouting like, suck my dick. Oh, the best. And I I like... (laughs) I just can't believe I went so long not seeing that. Thank you so much, Sierra. It's so good. I saw it in the theater, and I think I went to the gym for, like, two extra months because of it. I wanted to shake my head. I was so about that movie. And I also just thought there was something really interesting about, like, like the scene where um, she has to do the um, test, but it's, like, super hot, and she's, like, quickly eating and then trying to do the thing. And, like, there were just so many fun little details to that movie that I feel like don't get enough credit. And the big reveal is that, like, they 
paint her as a lesbian in order to get her kicked out of the military, which is like watching that now, you're just like, what the fuck were we doing? Oh, yeah. But, um, but yeah. And also and it was it, a politically, um, it, it was like a really progressive movie where like now we finally fought for like women's rights to fight in on the front lines because it's not really a thing anymore. So all it totally. is is like an entryway for women to get promoted in the military and they were yeah. not, they were like letting them do it in the paperwork. And this movie's like about that. No. And everyone was like, oh, I can't believe she wants women to go on the front lines and die. And it's like, oh, we're so dumb. I know. It's also too, like, I don't know. I feel like this is, I'm obviously not a Navy SEAL, but I feel like like a lady in comedy, this is what it feels like in terms of, like, I have to get in with these dudes, and I have to get them to accept me, and I'm <laughs> probably smarter than a lot of them, but I have to, like, find a way to hustle through and, like, prove my worth so that I get to stay. And, like, in in like my college years, like, that's what it felt like. You're, like, the only, one of two or three girls in, like, group of 30 dudes, and, like, there is that sort of acclimation and and sort of assimilation between each other. I think that... Oh, my God. You're so right. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. But I do think that's why I loved that movie so much because I was like, Absolutely. oh, right. This, you have to, like, kind of deny your femininity, but then at the same time, you know, get it back somehow. <laughs> it's like, it's all well, so Well, and I weird. think another key part of that metaphor is that in order to exist with them, you have to literally get kicked in the face till you're so bloody you want to die and then still <laughs> keep going while they just get to, like, chill. Um, and, yeah, I do... I also... I think like now we're finally at the place where it's like you don't have to hide your femininity to be a no. woman maybe or uh, it, there's still fucked up shit around it but I don't um, think so though because I worked yeah I remember like I worked on a show where it was like majority women and someone very nice writer but he was like talking about something and we were talking about like side braids and he was like all right ladies like enough and I was like do you have any fucking fantasy football leagues I've had to join in this industry Batman jokes I've right. sat through yeah. shut yeah. up do you much Laker games I had to pretend to care about like pick up a magazine, learn about side braids. And he was like, all right, fair. He was like, fair. Oh. And like, he got it. He took it. But it was like one of those things. So I do think like, depending on the environment, it's very different, but, um, you're right. No, I've it's had, much better yeah. now, but yeah, it does. It does. But it was feral in the two thousands. It was. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh my God. I mean, the, the further back you go, the worse it was. Okay. So, um, <laughs> She, yeah, her body goes through so much that she finally stops punishing her body. A big part of this book that we're not covering is that, like, she's doing psychotic things to her mm-hmm. body to control it post-pregnancy, stuff like stuff that's really tough. And finally, after this, she's like, I'm at peace with my body. And she gets a call that her mom is dying. And that takes us into part three of the book, which is Surrender. Um She goes back to New Mexico after eight years and takes care of her mom as she dies. And when she finally is just the thing she was her... the whole her whole life she was her mom's mom and they had friction because she was the daughter but at this point in her life she's an adult her mom is dying and she really is her mom's mom and that relationship works for them and they heal as they go through this and that's another part of the book i love where it's like her mom did evil stuff to her and here she is teaching you how to still heal those relationships so wild yeah and yeah i can tell you're like yeah no i'm not like i'm not doing that (laughs) No, I just think that there's, like, I think I'm happy for her, for Demi Moore to get closure. And I think that being the bigger person, like, ultimately you wish you were by that bedside and you're glad you're there. So I'm, I'm like, happy for her and her closure. But I I just think, like, there is a codependency setting proper boundaries where, like, it's not for them. She needed to have another therapist through these chapters and did not. For sure. Yeah. Well, also during this time... She and Bruce decide they're going to divorce. And speaking to their great friendship, like, you know, they're deciding this as she's taking care of her mom. He's coming to New Mexico. It's peaceful enough that they – it's like an amicable split. So much so that he 
buys the the house next to their house in Haley, Idaho, and they live next to each other uh, even now. Um, she then leaves Hollywood, raises the girls in Idaho. She becomes um, she becomes obsessed with toys, and she says in the book, "Like I'm obsessed with toys." But the way she describes it, you're like, "This is this is Howard Hughes level <laughs> uh, bad." A haunting obsession with toys, which is, yeah. you know, because she didn't get a childhood. But it's fine. True. Buy all your toys. You're Demi Moore. Here's the thing. If I had Demi Moore money, I'd have some weird toys. I'd have I mean, a, a collection of, yeah. There's, like, there's a store at Disneyland that's all just, like, crystal figurines. And I told my husband, I was like, if I ever hit the lottery, there'll just be a room that no one will know about. And I'll just go and play with my crystal <laughs> figurines. But I don't want anyone to know about it. And he was like, all right, we'll talk about it. But, yeah. I that's so like. funny because that goal is really attainable for you. And I'm so worried that that's going to happen <laughs> to your husband. Um, so she's out of Hollywood for a long time until Drew Barrymore calls her and, and is like, please come be in Charlie's Angels. I wrote this part for you. And in 2003, when that movie is coming out, she's doing press for the movie. She goes to a dinner and she meets Ashton Kutcher. And I must say, like, you have to buy the book for Ashton, not just the dish, but because it is a stunning portrait in how we lose ourselves when trying to make a bad relationship work. Especially like, and you've done it multiple times. Like, it's like, it's like you get, it's like you have a play and you're constantly playing the same role and you've cast someone new in the like romantic lead role. But it's like crazy how quickly, they say right when you're an addict, like if you were on heroin and you go... 10 years without doing heroin and you you relapse, you do the amount of heroin you did when you first started. You don't like dip and like try a little bit. Like oh, most wow. likely within like a couple of weeks, you're back to the level that you were when you were full-blown addict. And I feel like Ashton is that for her where it's like, well, whatever that's kind that of codependency you were talking right, about. Right, right, right. You go like zero to a hundred, zero to I'll be whatever you want so quickly. It's like almost the t- last 10 years didn't happen. So I just want to preface this because we're going to talk a lot of shit about Ashton Kutcher. I don't know Ashton Kutcher. This is her vantage point. So I'm going based on this evidence. That is my opinion of Ashton Kutcher. I'm sure if he wrote something, it would be very different. So I'm just saying we're judging people and I don't want to like. Okay. And thank you so much. And I just want to say what Sierra said, but like for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and also what's interesting is that they meet each other when she's 40. She's this a really powerful celebrity, really well-known. He's young, just starting his career. And by the time this relationship ends, she's the powerless one. He's, he, and, and not, I'm talking emotionally. So it's it's seeing her go from this incredible woman to giving everything to him and losing it. Mm-hmm. So to kind of go over this, um, the big theme of this is that Demi Moore never had a childhood. And so she gets to be 16 again and date 24-year-old Ashton Kutcher and finally be a child because she has mothered herself and taken care of her own life to the point that she can finally be a child again and then becomes addicted to this younger man. This is exactly what happens with Cher, and this happens with Tina Turner. Um, Ashton and her have a, another whirlwind romance. Um, he talks, he he doesn't like believe in her sobriety. He's like, it's sort of a bummer you can't drink like can't it just be a choice and even though she's not only does he not believe in her sobriety he doesn't believe in sobriety he doesn't believe like it's like such a 25 year old thought of like oh if you just like everything don't do the thing oh my god he also he's also like a perfect 25 year old where they were talking about like he owned his own home and he was like that kind of midwestern responsible and like it's a little bit of that really too in a wild way wants to be a dad and is obsessed with being a stepdad and like loves that she's a mom and so she's like this 25 year old like loves that i'm a mom and it's like yeah 
And you've been and, in Idaho. And, like, of course you're going to like, I totally get it from everybody's perspective. Like I get absolutely. how he would be enthralled with this like very famous, powerful woman. I get how she would be like, oh, this is happening. And finally I get to be in control of a relationship and I get to call the shots in a way that like, I'm constantly just getting thrown around by what men want me to do. Like you, it's like a perfect storm of understanding. Like you fully get how this happens. And um, so he's, she's 40 years old. She has 20 years of sobriety underneath her and she throws it away because she wants to be the fun girl that Ashton Kutcher likes. And then they, the big thing is that they decide really early on, like, because he's like a family guy, you know, and Demi gets pregnant about a year into their relationship and she's on top of the world. She says she's never been happier. And then at six months, she miscarries and it's devastating. And she describes, she really goes into detail about what a a tragedy it was for her and that it really made her feel decimated. And, you know, and t- to have a miscarriage at any time can be devastating, but at six months is especially, it just seems so intense. And her chapter on going through this was really beautiful and really tough. And then, you know, through her grief, Ashton can't relate. He's like, I don't know why you're so sad because he's 27. And he's just like, nah, I kind of can't relate to this. I don't know why you're so sad. And um, she becomes obsessed with getting pregnant again naturally because now there's this thing in the press of like, she's old and he's young. And she's like, oh God, every time she can't get pregnant again, she's thinking like, I am old. I am too old for him. And she becomes obsessive about it. And they're doing IVF and they're scheduling and her self-worth starts to die. And she's not this confident, amazing woman as she struggles to make this happen for Ashton. And also she's drinking when she's not trying to get pregnant. And then she, like, when she falls off the rails with pills or with booze, Ashton's annoyed. He's like, oh, God. And she, it's like, yeah, because she was sober. <laughs> like, that's this whole thing with sobriety existing is that, like, really bad and it doesn't. Just like the 2000s were the height of, like, I have to be a cool girl and, like, I have to oh, do whatever they want. It's like the yes. height of, like, Maxim Magazine. And even those, like, Charlie's Angels movies that I loved, it was, like, the height of, like, I just want to drink beer and eat pizza and be a size two and, like, do a Girls Gone Wild video. I love ranch dressing. Oh, I love thongs. And you're just, like, there were no women that were, like, no, I'm not doing any of that. So, like, yeah. when I saw Closest women... thing do- with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> For sure. And when I... Even her, freaking Miss Congeniality. It was, like, everyone secretly wanted to be these, like, hot, cool girls and, like... I just could not do that. And it was like, my body just wouldn't conform to any of it. It tried. And so I just feel so bad for her because like the, like the Jessica Simpson book, I feel like there were so many books where they were told like, Oh, this is how I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to project. And like, she just couldn't do it. And, and she should have had to like, it just, I don't know. She absolutely should not have had to pretend she could drink and party with her five year old boyfriend. And and yet, they're still together. They have a Kabbalah wedding. Um, Ashton is in a Where white he wore fedora. A fedora. <laughs> we both just called that out at the same time. I, unless you are Latino, you okay. cannot pull off a fedora. I, I like, agree. Unless you're Frank also, Sinatra or Latino, Latinx, you cannot pull off a fedora. And a white one. Oh my god! White um, with a black ribbon, like it's, it's just all of it's so bad. But it's also like it's a young dude's choice. Oh, so uh, I know. But if bad, I was walking down the aisle and I saw my groom in a fedora, I'd be like, I would nope. run away, bride. Like, <laughs> like find the nearest taxi cab. There's no way. Um, yeah, if I was her, I'd be like, thank God I'm drinking. Um, <laughs> so it is 2005 when they get married. Um, a bunch of stuff happens. You just have to read the book, but. Um, 
he becomes a stepdad to her kids. She's so torn up about the pregnancy. Um, he's mad at her about the prescriptions. And then they open up their marriage for threesomes. And Demi's like, this was a healthy and positive experience. I'm if I could if I reached out to those two women now, like I'd have a great time. And she mentions that because she blames herself when Ashton cheats on her with a 21-year-old when she's out of town, and not just any 21-year-old. One night, Demi and the kids and Ashton were out bowling, and this woman went up to him and was like, oh my God, I'm such a fan, and gives him her number on a napkin in front of Demi and her daughters, and he shows it to Demi. He's like, oh, isn't this gross? And she's like, yeah, I'm horrified. It turns out he kept the number, and then when Demi was out of town, he called her and slept with her. <sighs> I, <laughs> I would, I, here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> all fault to Ashton, all fault to Ashton. But I I am not friends with, I do not support women who do stuff like that. It's just like, you guys, life is hard enough. Like, do not go give him your number at a bowling no. alley because he's a piece of shit. He doesn't deserve your number, one. Two, like, <laughs> you're going to enact this harm on Demi, our queen Demi? <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I do love how, like, 20 years ago, we were like, cheat on that guy with that other guy, Demi. <laughs> now we're like, don't give your number out at a bowling alley. I don't know. Wow, I you're so think, right. Well, I also think, too, though, it's like, I've definitely done this where, like, I gave my heart to someone who stomped on it. But then, like, in retrospect, I was like, oh, I had no business giving that man my heart like that was so stupid and this person even said like don't give me your heart this is bad I'm gonna cheat on you and it's gonna be bad and like I kind of feel like with the with the relationship of it all it's like she clearly got stuff out of it but there's also like clearly this man was not emotionally equipped yes to to know what to do she wrote this great line in the book she said every one of his actions was saying please don't love me but unfortunately for both of us I did right (sighs) and that's that's the thing what the heart wants, like you're emotionally attached to these people. And it's like, it's so hard until you get the venom out of your blood to like, to, you know, extract. Oh, absolutely. And I, I've had weirdly, I've had, this makes me think of like a plat- like platonic female friendships I've had where it's like, I'm like, we're a power female couple. And they're like, I don't want this. And I'm like, let's go. Um, and, and it's, it's just such a tough place to be in because also when, when someone like doesn't want you, it, it, via science you want them more so it's a really totally. hard thing to get out of um, and there's also people where i feel like when i'm around them i just become crazier like there's definitely people in my life who are like oh when we hang out why do i go insane and yeah. it's like maybe just don't hang out with that person that you're like no i have to figure it out i have to become the-. so there's also just people where it's like over time you're like where i think the opposite was bruce willis it's like even <laughs> though they couldn't be together like something about them being near each other like made them both good people and like i think you I As love you your older, love your for Demi and Bruce. I didn't come away from this book with, like, a love for them, and I love that you did. <laughs> well, my mom loved Bruce Willis when I was a little kid, and he was, like, the coolest guy. And he was, I don't know, I just always think, like, I'm sure he's, like, whatever in real life, but the version of them in my head is perfect, and I'll hold on to that forever. I'm going to hold on to that now, too. Um, okay, so... To, to get through the rest of the Ashen stuff, um, he cheats on her, and then September 23rd, 2010, they do those speeches. He does those speeches about freeing sex slaves, which is, like, I want to put that aside because those speeches are so important, but, like, the fact that Ashton is the face of free sex slaves and then now knowing he was, like, cheating on his wife, like, the night before and then being, like, real men protect women, um, whatever. Um, and so then uh, now Demi's daughters, and this isn't really covered, but there's enough in there that, like, the way Demi was acting with Ashton was horrible to her daughters. And her daughters start acting out. She says she was lost in Ashton and addicted to him. And 
Through all these actions, Scott, uh, Scout and Tallulah stop speaking to her. And then somehow Demi and Ashton are still together. He goes to Danny Masterson's bachelorette party, cheats on Demi again. The next day for their anniversary shows up and is like, I love you. And then she gets a Google alert uh, when she's at an event that he cheated on her the day before their anniversary. And after six years, they divorce. And this takes us back to the beginning of the book where she's at rock bottom. She's down to 96 pounds. Rumor is her only daughter still speaking to her. And Demi's in this horrible post-Ashton place and goes to a party in 2012 and does nitrous. What I found, the only page of this book where I felt like Demi didn't give us her all is when she played down the nitrous, where she was like, I mean, everyone was doing it. Like, it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> um, and I, and uh, so how she handled the Ashton relationship, you know, it went from that famous photo of Ashton and Bruce Willis and her three kids and Demi, you know, all hugging each other at the Charlie's Angels premiere. And that photo, like, blew up the internet. But Demi was just genuinely happy, and everyone got along, and they were there to support her movie. And then from there is the miscarriage, falling out of her sobriety, putting Ashton over her daughters and over herself, and then post-divorce from him, spiraling so hard you know, especially with her sobriety, and she's spiraling to her grief, and it's so bad that every single person in her life tells her that she needs to get sober, and and she needs to get sober so much so that they all cut her off. And even when she goes to rehab, does the work, and gets out of rehab, they still don't speak to her. And she has to face herself and all of her problems and ask herself how she got here. And Demi spends the next three years completely alone figuring herself out. And this is one of the most amazing chapters on trauma, I think. And she kind of just gives you like a bunch of incredible therapy. <laughs> and the one that uh, stuck out to me was, I, I can't remember a time when I didn't worry, is it okay that I'm here? I spent decades scurrying to justify to myself, thinking if I just worked hard enough, maybe I could earn the right to be wherever I was. This hit me really hard. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just really related to that. I, I'm kind of like, it sounds like so dumb to be like, I'm such a hard worker. But like, I, I've just, people people make jokes about it all the time, how I'm always working. But I really related to it coming from this place of like, if I just work hard enough, it's okay that I'm here. And people will see that I'm okay. Yeah, for sure. And there's like a feeling of like, I'll get enough gold stars that my existence will be fine. Like, I don't have to be sorry for existing. And there's something yeah. just so heartbreaking about it that like, she works so hard and she fundamentally ends up where her mother does, which is with her daughter cutting off all ties, you know? Yeah. But I hope, like, I don't know. I feel like my dad um, has struggled with drugs and alcohol, like, his whole life. He's been sober for many years now. Um, but one of the best things that he did was he was, like, in the program when I was a child. And so, like, I've always used, like, AA speak and, and the serenity prayer and stuff. And, like, I feel like he didn't have that, like, with his parents. And I hope that her daughter's it seems like her daughters have like sort of a through line of, of like therapy and, and support and like kind of that emotional language that clearly she didn't have at their age. And you, you hope anyway that like they're able to, you know, draw from that. And she gives them space to tell their own story, which I thought was really beautiful, where she's like, they're going to tell their version one day. And like, that's OK. Uh, when she goes to your thing about perception, like I kind of read this being like, I think it's maybe what she did is way worse to her daughters than what's on the page, because I can't imagine what would make me stop speaking to my mom for three years and not even say happy. And you can't even say happy birthday. So that's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. But or or they had the they had the like 
therapy and the self-esteem to just not be codependent. You know what <laughs> okay. I mean? Okay, like, or that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying like setting that healthy boundary. Like I've definitely been in situations where it's like, it's not necessarily like this huge thing, but it's like, you have to self-preserve and yeah. you care about yourself more than making this person who's like a live wire happy. And like, I think like you hope that's what it is anyway. Oh, that you know? was really beautiful and healthy. Um, okay, <laughs> so I'm just going to read um, these last bits. I'm going to just pull some last bits as we close the final page of this book. Things happen in life to get our attention to make us wake up. What does it say that I had to lose so much before I could break down and rebuild? And I love looking at bad things as like they're actually catalysts for something better. In the final paragraph, um, there are two reasons I wanted to tell this story. The story of how I learned to surrender. First, because it's mine. It doesn't belong to the tabloids or my mom or the men I've married or the people who've loved or hated my movies or even my children. My story is mine alone. I'm the only one who was there for all of it, and I decided to claim the power and tell it on my own terms. The second reason is that even though it's mine, maybe some part of this story is yours too. Am I going to cry on my own podcast? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Do it. I've had extraordinary luck in this life, both bad and good. Putting it all down in writing makes me realize how crazy a lot of it has been, how improbable, but we all suffer and we all triumph and we all get to choose how we hold both. And I, <laughs> so embarrassed that I'm crying. But, um, <laughs> this is like why I feel like this is the thesis statement of like this podcast, as silly as it is. But or it, it's the thesis statement of these books for me, where it's like it's their story and it's so healing for them. But then it's like also your story, and you're like, okay, if like you can work through that, then like I can too. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's like a yeah, it's like a testimony in this like beautiful way that she was able to overcome the stuff. You guys, okay, that's the end of the book. And now, okay, so let's just end on a quick thank you to Demi Moore. Demi, I want to thank thank you you for the suck my dick scene. I want to thank you for (laughs) suffering, um, suffering the repercussions of feminist actions when feminist culture wasn't there to support you with all our hashtags and shit that we have now. And I just want to thank you for that sweet quarantine content. It's so good. Yeah, I love it. I love her. I love her so much. I, yeah, I don't know what else to thank her for. I mean, we, thank you for that long mane of black hair. Oh, uh, so it's beautiful. Incredible. Cannot even imagine what went into me. I mean, that. thank you for being um, named after a bottle of lotion. Oh, uh, thank you for, I mean, thank you for J.I. Jane. I feel like that was one of the first movies I saw where I was like, oh, this is like a female protagonist getting to do all the stuff that I wish I could do in these other movies I'm watching. And yeah, thank you for also, I think, showing an imperfect but very much trying depiction of motherhood. Like, thank you for showing all of the slings and arrows, but then also all of the love and positivity. I think like, what a gift. Oh, it is such a gift. Um, okay, so Sierra, this was so, uh, I just feel so much closer to you now, even though we DM Yay. a million times a day. Um, <laughs> tell everyone where they can find m- more of you and more of these gems of wisdom. Oh, I'm uh, at Sierra Ornalis on most platforms. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's episode. I loved having Sierra on as a guest. Not only was she incredible, but she literally was taking a break from directing and shooting her own TV show to come and talk to us about that book in in her trailer on set, which was just so cool. Um, Her show is called Rutherford Falls. It'll be out on Peacock, so keep an eye out for it. It's going to be so good. Um, 
Thank you so much to our production team here at Stitcher, producer Brandon Nix and executive producer Daisy Rosario with production help from Corinne Wallace. They are so amazing. And you guys, I'm going to be putting up an Instagram story full of visuals that go along with this Demi Moore episode. So follow me on Instagram at Chelsea Devantes to join the Celebrity Book Club or go to the Facebook group, Celebrity Book Club Podcast. That's where you guys can share all your thoughts and start discussions and we can dive into the wild details that didn't make it into the episode. And you can listen to ad-free episodes of Celebrity Book Club only on Stitcher Premium. So if you'd like a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code BOOKS. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Truly, it, it helps us so much to keep the podcast going and know that people like it so that we can keep making more episodes. So um, please click all the stars and things, you know, if you love it. And, you know, if not, go refill your wine glass and maybe listen again and maybe you'll like it even more. (laughs) All right. I will see you guys next week.